The greatest danger facing the church is religion without the cross. The Christian church no longer confesses her sins and misery, but believes that she's not that bad. And so preaching has become counseling to get us over the hope or to get us over the hump. We no longer confess how we are delivered from our sins and misery. We go to church to deliver ourselves. So church is activism. And we are no longer hearing how we must offer our lives of thank offering for all that God has delivered us or how God has delivered us offering our thanks for his great deliverance. Rather, we come to church to merely feel it, to experience it. So church is entertainment. And it's I need to be more socially aware. So church is political. And church political... I believe is going to be the greatest threat to the faith for the foreseeable future. You see, Christianity has lost its grasp on culture like it ever had it in the first place. A type of Christianity had a grasp of the culture, perhaps. But nevertheless, the church believes she no longer has grasps of the culture. She now no longer has power of persuasion in the world. And so the pulpit... Is going to become very political. And politics, politics is going to overshadow the gospel. And if you understand the necessity of the gospel, the gospel for the Christian, the gospel's for the Christian, then you're going to recognize the danger. In our text this morning, David was the perfect politician. David plays politics better than any other. He's the perfect politician. He did everything right, and Israel remained divided. That's because politics divides by necessity. And that's really what we're learning from this text this morning. That politics divides. That's because politics is the conflict between individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. Isn't that politics? The conflict of individuals or parties hoping to achieve or having or keeping their power? So politics divides by necessity. The cross, however, is the work of Christ. Who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, the cross unites. 2 Samuel 19 reminds the church to beware the seduction of politics. That's really what I want to preach on this morning, that we as Christians need to beware the seduction of politics. And I'm talking about politics in the church. You want to go out these doors tomorrow, give yourself a break at least today. <laughs> but if you want to go out tomorrow and day one, just start politicking all over the place, go for it. Knock yourself out. 
You have the right. You might even do some damage. Or good. Can you, yeah, good. But I'm talking about in the church. I'm talking about politics in the church. I'm talking about confusing the cross with politics. 2 Samuel 19 reminds us to beware of the seduction of politics. Verse 9. And all the people were arguing. There you can highlight the verb arguing. Throughout all the tribes of Israel. All the people were arguing. All the people were doing what all the people have always done since the beginning of nations. Debating politics. And nations will debate their future until the end of time. Because while nations may have a protoss. We know our origins usually, right? Therefore, we every summer, we celebrate our independence, right? But we don't have an eschatos. As a nation, we don't know how and how and where we're going. We don't know our future. Nations do not know their future. They may, have a, they may know their origins, but they don't know the end. And so there will be debate ad nauseum. But once you do, once you know your origin, once you have a protoss and an eschatos, once you know the beginning and how it all ends, you could do something better with your life than debating politics. You can debate theology. <laughs> Arguing will not end this side of glory. But at least, hey, debating theology has some kind of, has a uh, eternal consequence. But they're debating. They're arguing. Verse 9, all the people were arguing throughout the tribes of Israel saying, the king delivered, it's all politics, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines and now he has fled, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. If Gallup would have took a poll of ancient Israel, Gallup would have shown that ancient Israel's top concern was secure borders. And no one secured their border, and I'm not making political statements, by the way, but no, no one secured their borders greater than the king, greater than King David. And so King David, bringing back the king, was top priority. He's fled out from the land of Absalom, verse 10. But Absalom, oh, here's the debate. But Absalom, whom we have appointed, remember Absalom won he won the primary, he won, he was the, uh, he won the popular vote. But Absalom, whom we appointed over us, is dead. He won the popular vote, but he couldn't achieve, he couldn't provide on his promises. But Absalom is dead, he's so, he's so incompetent, he couldn't defend the nation, much less himself. But Absalom is dead, dead in battle. Now, therefore, and this is a rhetorical question, why therefore, now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? They're arguing, they're debating. Bring back the king. And David begins to hear the debates. He hears the political turmoil that's going on, and so he's seduced by the politics, and he enters into the political fray. He brings the office, a spiritual office of king, the king of Israel, theocratic nation. He brings that office into the political debate. He enters the debate. Verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abithar the priests. A mean tweet. No, it wasn't a mean tweet. But it's just as effective. And David, 
He didn't want to wait to see where Judah would fall. He, he heard the debate. He knew there was a debate going on. He didn't want to just wait to see where the debate led. He wanted to push the debate towards his favor. So in good political fashion, without access to social media, he went to the next best thing. That is, he used religion. Say to the priests, say to the elders of Judah, because the elders of Judah would listen to these men, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? And David's platform was, don't be last. Don't be last. And he appealed to their ego. Don't fall behind the other tribes. Be first. If he would have had a hat, if he would have had red hats, his red hats would have said, be the first. Be the first to bring me back. Verse 12. You are my brothers. And so he plays identity politics there, right? You're my brothers. We're family. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He appealed to their ego. He appealed to their identity. He calms their fears. And say to Amasa, you're not my, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of our army from now on in the place of Joab. Joab has been the general from the very, very beginning. His cousin, Amasa is also his cousin. Amasa had been fighting against David. Amasa was the enemy. But now instead of vengeance, retribution, David offers him a reward. You see, David is trying to tell Israel, heads are not going to roll. If you bring me back, heads are not going to roll. If any head should roll, it should be Amasa's head because Amasa was treacherous, treacherous and has been fighting against me. If any head should have rolled, it was Amasa's. And Torah demanded punishment for reviling Israel's leaders. Torah demanded punishment for what Amasa had done. But David needed support rather than authentic religion. It's politics. And David had quite a knack for it. Verse 14. It says that he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return. Return you and your house. Return you and your servants. Now the verb swayed there. The verb swayed carries the idea of a tight enticing. He enticed them, and he, he enticed them to his side. He won them to his side through his political savvy. And you can't have politics without snakes. And Shemiah, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Barim, hurried. That's an important verb right there, hurried. Hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet the king. A very important word, he hurried. And then a very important phrase, and with him. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin. That's an important phrase, with him, a thousand men. He hurried and he apparently convinced many of his own tribesmen to jump on the David train. Let's jump on the David train, come with me. Because in politics, you know, you got to raise good support, right? He raises his support, come with me. Let's go down and welcome David. A thousand men. And then Ziba. And you remember these two men, right? Shemiah and Ziba. 
You kind of you have to recall who they were. Remember Shemiah, he was the one who was cursing David. Ziba is the one who lied to David. Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15, that's an important phrase. So both men came. He come, Z, uh, Shemiah came with all of the nation of Benjamin. He came with the nation of Benjamin. Ziba comes with all of his house. And they rushed down. That's an important word. Ziba rushed. Shemiah hurried. Ziba rushed. They both made haste. And they both came with pomp. Neither man was alone in their haste. The two men rushed, hurried, with a good showing to serve the king. Verse 18, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. To do the king's pleasure. Highlight that. To do the king's pleasure. That's politics. It's not thy will be done. They're not seeking to do the Lord's will. That's the cross. The Lord's will is pick up your cross, follow the Lord, glorify the Lord. Glory, rather, or politics, man's pleasure. And they came with religion. I love it. They crossed through the king's pleasure. And Shemiah, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty, confessing his guilt. Remember how your servant did wrong the day when my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. Your servant knows I've sinned. He's confessing his sins. This is good. Good stuff. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, first of all, to the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. He came with religion. He came confessing his sins. We're going to learn later on in 1 Kings, he's a snake. But he came confessing his sins to save his skin. He came confessing his sins not for a savior, but to save his own skin. That is, he and Ziba here, they were coming to the king, rushing and hurrying with their contingent to serve out of fear. This is fear. They came to get out of hell. They wanted their get out of hell card. They knew what to do, do this. So it was really fear that motivated them. They're motivated by fear, which the canons of Dort tell us is not the proper response to the gospel. Proper response to the gospel is not, oh, I'm afraid I better turn to the cross or I don't want to go to hell, so I better trust in Christ. That's compulsion. Seeking the Lord out of fear is compulsion. You're afraid. And so you seek to earn heaven by your stripes, by your own stripes. But we, however, serve the Lord out of thankfulness. We love because he first loved us. And we have peace because of Christ's stripes born for us. So the question for you is, do you serve? Do you serve the Lord for what you can get out of it? Or do you serve the Lord for what he has done for you? Are you serving the Lord for what you can get? Or are you serving the Lord for what he has given? Law or gospel? And when the church goes political, like we see the church and the people of God going political in this text, when the church goes political, you can bet Shemias and Zibas will fill the pews. 
And they come. And they come to save their necks. They come to save the nation. They come to save the home. And they come not for a savior. They come to church for policy. They want to hear policy. And the gospel says lose your life. Lose your life. Whoever loses their life for Christ's sake has found it. The church needs to be aware of the temptation to combine the gospel with politics. This is what we see in our text. Verse 21, Abisha, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shemia be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? That's Torah. That's law. Abisha wanted to use the law. Abisha had zeal for Torah. But I'm not so sure it was zeal for Torah more than the use of Torah to get what he wanted. Verse 22. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuriah? This is like the fourth time, I think. I think this is like the fourth time David has had to rebuke the sons of Zuriah for their desire for revenge. He says that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Now the phrase adversary to me could be read that you should be this day a Satan to me. Because in Hebrew, this is the word Satan, where we get the name of Satan, the devil, right? The serpent. First Peter 5 8 says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls like a lion seeking to devour. And so the use of the law to satisfy, satisfy one's own lust for vengeance. The satanic. He's being an adversary. And rather than law, David took a different approach. Verse 22. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shemia, you shall not die. And the king gave him an oath. Rather than the law, David mercy. Rather than vengeance, David graced. And I love the law-gospel distinction here. And I love that David mercied. This wasn't really mercy. Just like Abisha's use of the law wasn't really law, this wasn't really mercy. His politics. You see, if David offed Shemiah's head, he would have suffered the alliance that Shemiah brought to him through the Benjamites. He would have lost the Benjamite connection and perhaps the rest of the northern tribes. He would have lost support. So David's mercy was not a matter of, of conviction, but policy. It's cheap grace. You've heard that phrase before, cheap grace? It's grace without conviction of sin and holiness. And cheap grace is a problem. Cheap grace is a problem in the church. Even historically, cheap grace is a problem in the church. But the greatest problem the church has ever had and always has had is not necessarily cheap grace, though it's there. But the real problem the church struggles with is the Beshai, legalists. The Bashais want leadership and they want to use the law to get what they want. And they sow the law freely. You want salvation? I got you some works. 
You want peace? Well, be afraid. You could lose it any minute. You better get busy. You want, a good, you want good children? Here's some law. You want a good wife? Law. Happy life. Happy wife. Good life. Get to work. God helps those who help themselves. Law. But the cross says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Christ is the end of the law. The cross says that you're released from the law that you might live by the Spirit. And this grace ain't cheap. It cost Christ everything. Who died to satisfy the wrath of a holy God who satisfied holiness and judgment. Who suffered for your sins. Died in your place. The gospel ain't cheap. Know the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, the ability to serve the Lord and my neighbor. The, the gospel ain't cheap. It makes me a slave of no one and servant of all. The gospel ain't cheap. It makes you a slave of no man and servant of all. And then we turn to Mephibosheth, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day he came back safely. Remember the last time we saw Mephibosheth, Ziba told us he was a traitor. And we know that Ziba lied to steal. And we remember that David impulsively Listened. He didn't use wisdom. He didn't really find out the real answer. But he just impulsively went against his promise to Jonathan. He impulsively broke his covenant, gave Ziba everything that belonged to Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth was not a traitor. Verse 25, when he came down to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you go with me, Mephibosheth? Where were you, Mephibosheth? Why are you a traitor, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, oh my lord, my king, my servant deceived me. Ziba's a real traitor. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. Ziba was a liar. Ziba lied. Ziba lied to David. And Ziba not only stole from Mephibosheth, he actually stole from David. He stole from his own household. He stole the covenant promise. He stole one who sat at his house. He was the real traitor. He slandered your servant to my lord, the king, but my lord, the king. And I just love Ziba here. I love Mephibosheth here. Mephibosheth in this text, he gives us a break from all the politics. Here we get a break from the politics and we actually finally get truth and we get fidelity we're going to see, we see goodness here. Like This is like, kind of like a, a break from all of the, the dirty politicking that's going on. Mephibosheth said, But the Lord, the king, is like an angel of God, like a servant, a messenger of God. Therefore, I'm going to be obedient to the messenger of the Lord. He's a faithful servant, faithful church member, right? Man, you want a bunch of Mephibosheths in your church. So therefore, therefore, what seems good to you, do what seems good to you. 
For all my father's house were but men. He knows where he comes from. He's like confessing his sins, his misery. He knows why he's been delivered from his misery. He just wants to offer David his life. All my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But your servant, but you set your servant, you loved me. I was unlovely, but you loved me. You set me at your table. You gave me life. You restored me. What right have I? What right have I to cry to the king? I have nothing except what you've given me, your love. I love Ziba, or I love Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was out to gain one thing from David. All Mephibosheth wanted from David was David. Mephibosheth is a refreshing character in this story of politics, faithful church member. He's a light of the gospel in a slimy chapter full of politics. And so this next verse doesn't make sense. And the king said to him, right, don't speak anymore. I've heard it all. I've decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all. Here again, right? I don't want anything. All I need is you. Since my lord, the king, has come home safely. But why does David only reverse his decision halfway? I mean, that's, that's good. He, re he reverses the decision. But Ziba's a liar, a traitor, a thief. Why does he only reverse the decision halfway? Is this justice? No. Is this fairness? No. It's politics. David couldn't alienate the Zeba contingent just like he couldn't alienate the Shemia contingent. Both men armed themselves with clout. So pragmatism rather than virtue prevailed. And we're back in the slime of politics. Verse 31, now Barzilla the Gileite had come down from Rogilium and he went out to the king of the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. He's a very aged man. He provided for the king. So we find out this is Barzilla, very rich. We've seen him before. He's a loyalist. He's a faithful loyalist to David, a wealthy man provided for David. And now he comes to meet David and David. He was good to David, so David's going to be good to him. He scratched David's back. David's going to scratch his back. That's politics, right? It's what you do in the political world. You scratch my back. I'll scratch. I got your back. You got my back. It's kind of the American church way. You do for me, I'll do for you. So churches have become kind of like uh, Christians. Christians today actually shop for churches. That's how you find your church. You go shopping for church. And, and church has answered the shopping with niche marketing. So every church has a various niche. And you pick your niche. What's my niche? Niche, niche. Depending on where you're at in the world. It's niche or niche. Niche. I think Canadians say niche, niche. Texans niche. I don't know. You just look for your niche. And with the political turmoil and all that, it becomes really politically, right? Oh, will you have republicanism or democracy with your side of the gospel today? You know, instead of the, and the gospel's not the main course. It's like, which, the main course, Republican, Democrat, and would you like a side of the gospel with that? Oh, not now. I've had enough. I'm full. Verse 
But the gospel is our only niche. And the gospel gives us our niche. It's the gospel. The church Catholic is our position. The pure preaching of the word, the pure administration of the sacraments, and church discipline is our orientation. Verse 40. And the king went to Gilgal. Kim Ham went with him. Kim, Kim Ham went on with him. All the people of Judah. That's important. All the people of Judah and, all, and, and only half the pe- people of Israel brought the king forward. The, the narrator's foreshadowing. All of Judah, but only half the Israelites. And then finally, all of Israel shows up. Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Stolen is very kind of, it's a very pointed word, right? It's a very pokey word. These thieves, right? These thieves stolen you away. They're attacking their character. What is this? Politics, right? That's what you do in politics. Ah. They brought the king and his household over Jordan, all the David's men with him. And then there's a character attack. And then, verse 42, and then all the men of Judah answered. So the men of Israel right here, pet puppets. All the men, ah, you've stolen. And then the men of Judah, ah, it's because the king likes us. We're better than you. And then Israel answers, no, we're better than you. I mean, that's literally what happens here. We're better than you. No, we're better than you. Nanny, nanny, boo-hoo. Little kids, that's kids, right? Nanny, nanny, boo-hoo. That's actually Fox News, CNN. Nanny, nanny, (laughs) boo-hoo. You love it. Ah, I love my nanny, nanny, boo-hoo. I only listen to my nanny, nanny, boo-hoo. It's pure politics. There's contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and the result is just more nastiness. Verse 43, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. We have more. We're greater. We're better. But then the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Fiercer words than the other is politics. Fiercer words than the other is politics. David played the perfect politician and the result the result was division. The nations divided. And this division is what happens when the church goes political. And there's an antidote. There's an antidote to this division in the text itself. The narrator subtly drops. He subtly drops right in the middle of the story the answer to all the trouble. It's right here in the text. Instead of defensiveness... They should have taken responsibility for their sins, just like Mephibosheth did. Instead of contempt, they should have realized that they had no right to life, just like Mephibosheth did. Like Mephibosheth, they should have lost their lives 
in order to truly find it. You see, friends, the cross is our peace. The cross is how God saved us. Christ took responsibilities for our sins instead of contempt. He did not count equality with thing to, thing to be grasped, but lowered himself, humbled himself to the point of death. Lowered, it text says, he lowered himself, humbled himself to death. Lowered himself for sinners. The king of glory, who is his king of glory? The Lord of hosts is king of... Lowered himself. The king of light and life died for his enemies. And the cross, dear Christian, is not only how God saved us, and you got to get this. This is the most important thing this morning. I'm saving it for the end so you won't forget. The cross is not only how God saved us. The cross is how God leads us. God saves us by the cross and he leads us by the cross. That means everything in the Christian life, everything that you can think through that's Christian, your theology, your Christian piety, your Christian practices, they must pass through the cross. Politics is conflict. The cross is humility. Politics is conflict for power. And the cross is suffering. Politics is division. The cross is service, suffering, and peace. The greatest danger facing the church is religion without the cross. Therefore, it is religion without suffering. It's worship without sacrifice. It's life without service. We need the cross proclaimed every Lord's Day. And then we need to pick up our cross and follow our crucified Savior into a kingdom not of this world, and then we'll be a church full of Mephibosheths. And Jeffrey will make a little, uh, what do you call those? Bracelets. What would Mephibosheth do? He's probably already thought of it. And then we are free. Then we've lost our life and we've gained it. And therefore we are free from all slavery. And we are free to serve everyone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.